Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This week's program deals with putting your faith and personal values above your personal freedom. We visit with Susan Crane, a former Peace Corps volunteer, a former Ukiah resident, and a founder of Plowshares, who will be discussing her lifetime commitment to ending nuclear proliferation through nonviolent action by pouring her blood on nuclear weapons. Susan Crane has served time in federal prison and is now facing another prison term that will be determined in March of 2011. Susan Crane, welcome again to Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry, for having me here. You've told me that you're in a self-created federal court predicament. Currently, you have been convicted of violating certain federal laws. You represented yourself, and you are waiting to argue a motion for a new trial. What's the trial about? Well, the trial's about something that happened in November of 2009, where five of us, five people, I'm one of them, went on to a naval base in Washington State where there's nuclear weapons are stored and where Trident submarines are home ported. And um, I want to mention the people who were with me that went on the base with me. One person, Bill Bixell, is a Jesuit priest who has been the the heart of the Tacoma Catholic worker for many, many years. And another person, Steve Kelly, is also a Jesuit priest who's been working with Catholic workers in California. And Sister Anne Montgomery was part of the first plowshare action back in 1980. She was with us. And also Lynn Greenwald, who's from Bremerton, from Washington State, who's been a social worker there. So we all got together, and after a lot of consideration and prayer and study, went on to the base in the middle of the night, cut through uh, the perimeter fence, walked for about four hours, and got to the middle of the base where there's the Strategic Weapons Facility Pacific. And we cut through two more fences and went right into the area where the nuclear bunkers exist. What are in the nuclear bunkers? There's nuclear warheads. There's warheads that are put on the Trident submarines. There's two different kinds. There's the 455 kiloton warheads and the 100 kiloton warheads. And uh, both of those nuclear weapons are put on the Trident submarines. And the larger one is about 30 times the blast and heat and radiation of Hiroshima if it's ever used. It's a tremendously powerful, horrendous nuclear weapon. How were you able to determine that's where these warheads are located? Well, it's pretty common knowledge. There's eight Trident submarines that are home ported at that base. And so the warheads would have to be stored somewhere. And there's bunkers that are there that house the warheads when they're not in the ships. What was your intention in going on to the naval shipyard and uh, being there? Well, our intention was to symbolically begin to disarm the uh, warheads. Of course, we would never hammer on a warhead, but our intention was to maybe hammer on the bunkers that hold them 
or to at least say that we want to hammer on them, we want to convert them, we want to convert our hearts from hearts of of hardness, hearts of violence to hearts of nonviolence, and we want to convert the economy from a military economy to a peace economy, and we want to convert these weapons from something that only has a use to destroy human life to something that might be useful. Convert our hearts. Who is included in our? Me. Convert my heart. I thought for having been your friend and acquaintance for 25 or so years, that your heart already is converted. I think the journey to nonviolence is a daily journey. It's a minute-to-minute journey, trying to figure out what is the nonviolent action to do. How do I treat you and everyone else nonviolently is a a constant struggle. So tell us what occurred when you were on the Trident submarine base at 4 in the morning. Well, um, so we so we cut through the first fence and we walked on the base. We passed a lot of cars, people in uh, shift change around 5.30 was happening. And cars passed us. We were all walking along the side of the road. I was carrying long bolt cutters. And um, no one stopped to uh, say hello to us. And so we walked up, up to the uh, area the Strategic Weapons Facility Pacific, and cut through those two last fences. And then uh, once we were in the Swift Pack area, in the middle of the base where the bunkers are, uh, there were some a couple of Navy personnel there. And um, we had a big banner that said, Disarm Now, Plowshares, Trident, Illegal and Immoral. And uh, we held that up, and uh, Father Bix did an exorcism with water and and uh, he exercised what well he was saying you know we we need to bring peace we need to say no to the violence and yes to um, love nonviolence compassion and uh, so anyway uh, eventually the marines came and separated us put us down on the ground put hoods on our heads and uh, held us there for about three hours, three and a half hours. Hoods on your head so you couldn't see? Well, the question, the reasons for the hoods uh, certainly are unknown to me. During the trial, one of the uh, Marines was asked about the hoods, and he said something like, well, we always put hoods on people in Iraq, Afghanistan, so we put hoods on them. I don't know why there were hoods. So you were uh, held for several hours with hoods on your head and then arrested? Well, I don't know. Probably we were arrested first. It felt like an arrest for sure. We were cuffed. You were taken somewhere? No, we were held on the grass. We were held right there. They, it took them, I guess, three and a half hours to decide what to do with us because we were in a very secure area and... We found out later they didn't want to have to bring in cars to this area because it's very complicated to get them through the uh, process of coming into a secure area. So what they ended up doing was picking us up and passing us through the holes in the fence that we had made, passing us out. On the stretcher? No, they just held us, passed us out, held my under my arms and my knees. And then what happened? And then they took us over to the NCIS office, and we were interrogated, I guess, questioned. And then they released us. What did they ask you? 
they wanted to know uh, who we were and what we were doing. And I, I told them that I, who I was, my name, and I told them I'd talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that was all. Uh, so I talked about the nuclear weapons that are held. How did they respond to what you said? Well, the two uh, NCIS men who questioned me actually were pretty kind. I was shivering for maybe an hour after after I was there because I had gotten so cold, and they brought me some coffee, and um, they were just asking me, and I didn't answer a lot of their questions. And then? And then they released us. They escorted you off the base. That's right. And and we found out later that the military wanted to hold us, but the U.S. Attorney's Office had uh, said that, that we were not a threat to the community and that we'd come back from court and that we should be released. What day of the week was this? Uh, it was the 2nd of November. I don't remember. That was remember. a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday. Uh, well, depends on the year. Yes, it was a Tuesday, I think. This was November 2nd? 2009. What was your desire? What plans did you have or what did you intend to do when you arrived at the bunkers and where the warheads are? I would have begun to hammer on it symbolically hammer on it and pour our own blood on it and um and and i you know in my mind i would have been thinking about the uh people who have been killed in hiroshima and nagasaki because of the use of those weapons and also um the fear that those weapons create around the world just by their existence and by their threat. You know, the Trident submarines, those eight Trident submarines from the Bangor base, roam the oceans. They have nuclear weapons that are on alert in them. They have 24 missiles, D-5 missiles with the nuclear weapons. And they're, they can be targeted anywhere. They can be, in 15 minutes, they can be anywhere on this earth. And people in other nations know that. What is the significance of pouring your own blood? Well, we each had blood that was withdrawn by a medical professional, and we mixed our blood together. And we we were saying if these weapons require blood to be given, we're, we're giving ours. And also, we the idea is that the symbol of blood is very, very stark. It's like, but these weapons, if these weapons are ever used, there's going to be a lot of blood that's shed. So we're saying, let's look at what blood looks like when it's all over the weapons. Among yourselves, how much blood did you have that, that, that you mixed together? We had about a baby bottle full for each person. About a pint. Yeah. So then you have been to court. Yes. We went to court. We had a trial. And you represented yourself? Yes, we represented ourselves. We had standby counsel who helped us. I want the details about that, but before we get there, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, recorded on January 29th, 
2011. We're visiting with Susan Crane, a former resident of Ukiah, California, a former Peace Corps volunteer, a former school teacher, and a person who is now very active in the plowshares movement, trying to expose the importance of nonviolence in the world and on a local level. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Susan, I remember many years ago here in Ukiah being co-counsel with you. My client was Erica Ensler, and the two of you were prosecuted for painting white markers around body shapes on Hiroshima Day. You continued your experience in the law, being your own attorney in this case in the state of Washington. Tell us about it. Well, we've found that if we're defending ourselves, there's we can say a lot more than if than an attorney can say because attorneys have to obey the rules of the court, and we we have a little more leeway and can get a little more uh, talk about international law, humanitarian law. In before the uh, trial started, the there were motions and motions hearings, and the judge decided that we couldn't use a necessity defense and we couldn't use humanitarian law in defense of what we did. So basically, we were left with no defense, no affirmative defense that we could use. So how did you present your case? Well, we still tried to talk about humanitarian law, and we tried to bring up necessity and explain that to the jury. And uh, that's the advantage of being our own attorney, is that we can get some of it in. But in the end, it didn't make much difference because the judge gave the jury instructions basically that said if they trespassed and if they cut fence, they're guilty. So, You talk about the defense of necessity. Can you explain that? That's a very simple defense. The idea is that, for example, if you're walking down the street and there's a house on fire and there's a child up in the second floor calling out the window, help, help you would probably break down the door and go in the house and pick the child up and take him out. And that would be, you would feel that was your obligation, your duty, your, the right thing to do. You wouldn't even think about it. But at another time, if you broke someone's door down and trespassed in their house and even took a child out of the house, those would be pretty serious uh, crimes. So you, in, when there is the need to do something, you can, to save someone's life, you can do something that would in, at another time be seen as a crime. Well, we feel these weapons are much more dangerous than a house on fire. Those nuclear warheads, um, if they're ever used, would go up in the air and come down and incinerate people in a whole city, a whole, well, as big as Los Angeles, as big as Seattle, as big as San Francisco. And this is the argument that you presented before trial to the judge um, in opposition to the U.S. attorney's motion to keep you from talking about the uh, defense of necessity. Yes. What did the judge say in the decision uh, disallowing that defense? Well, the judge said that that we didn't meet all the elements. And, and uh, I asked him which element we didn't meet. And um, he eventually said uh, imminence. And he also said he had decided because of precedence. But our, our argument was 
that because we have so many nuclear weapons in this country and because we've failed to uh, go along with the treaties that we've signed and begin to disarm in good faith, and because we're continually rearming, other countries feel a need to get nuclear weapons, and that's why there's more proliferation. So we feel there is imminence. But you couldn't present that defense. You uh, said that the judge said if you had gone onto the property, you were, in a sense, guilty. What did the jury say? Well, the jury didn't have didn't have much choice. And I say that because in the very beginning, in the opening statement, one of the opening statements that I gave, I said, we did walk onto the base and we did cut fence. And the trial's not about that. The trial's about these weapons. Are they legal or not? And do we have a duty and a responsibility and obligation to bring out their illegality, to say they're not legal, we should disarm them? And Some of the jurors heard that, and when the jury started to deliberate, they didn't come to a decision right away. There was more, there were a few jurors who said, this doesn't seem right to us. We don't think they're malicious. One of the charges was about maliciousness. And furthermore, they didn't give any um, evidence of, they didn't show any bills or receipts for the uh, damages we supposedly did. For the fence. Did you testify on your own behalf? We did not testify. We decided not to. Uh, we, we had um, witnesses who testified for us. We had a submarine uh, captain, a retired commander of a submarine who testified about the law and, and about how uh, people in the military aren't allowed to indiscriminately kill civilians, which certainly these nuclear weapons do. We had a uh, medical doctor testify about who was going to testify about the medical effects of nuclear weapons, but the judge wouldn't let him. We had uh, Stephen Leeper from Japan come, who's head of the Hiroshima Museum, who was going to talk about the effects of nuclear weapons and what's happened with the Habakusha and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we had Angie Zelter from Scotland come and testify she's been part of many plowshares actions and because they in Scotland and England they're able to talk about international law humanitarian law they've been found not guilty the jury found you guilty you're awaiting sentencing pending a motion for a new trial yes what's the grounds for the motion for the new trial well we said that the trial wasn't fair and listed many points some, you know, it wasn't fair because we couldn't put on a defense, but also there were some technical problems that maybe aren't so important, but we added in. And we don't know how the judge will rule, but probably he won't rule in our favor. So you've argued the motion and now you're waiting for the decision. We haven't. We asked for oral arguments. We haven't been told if we have them or not. So the decision hasn't been submitted to the court to decide whether you are entitled to a new trial. We put in the motion. The government has responded. We're not putting in a reply. And the judge will either say, yes, you have oral arguments or no, you don't. And this is my ruling. What are the possible consequences, the sentencing? The uh, U.S. Attorney's Office said at the beginning that we're looking at possibly 10 years. 
You've been in federal prison in the past. Yes. How long? A total of over five years, day-to-day time. So you choose to put yourself uh, in the queue once again to go to jail. What motivates you to take these actions? I would say that I choose to practice my faith. And um, my faith that tells me to love my enemies, to love one another, to be nonviolent. And... um, and it's more important that we do that than uh, defend these weapons. Or it's more important that I that I um, take a stand for nonviolence than than um, be silent while this nation spends over half of every federal tax dollar on on war making. And you know, there's a new set of Trident Trident uh, submarines that are being ordered. They're going to cost $70 billion. And meanwhile, up in Washington State, there's schools that are being closed. There's libraries that are being closed. There's uh, people that are being told, no, you can't have any uh, welfare. You can't have any help. You can't have any medical care. We're not going to pay for your medicine anymore. Big changes are happening. And meanwhile, we're spending this $70 billion for a whole new set of Trident submarines. My question isn't to the rationale as to the, the, how you would like to see the federal money spent. It's more to your future. Um, 10 years in federal prison for a person your age or 60 something is a long time. Do you think that that period of time of incarceration is, well, let me ask it this way. How do you balance the period of time of incarceration uh, to the publicity which you're getting uh, about your actions? If that's an important uh, item to balance. I think, or what I hope I balance is, am I being faithful or not? And For me, if I uh, live in this country and I'm complicit with the war crimes that are happening, I'm not being faithful, and I and I don't want to live that way. You know, I I do think back to World War II Germany, and I think what would I have done uh, back then if I if I had been living there and Hitler were in charge? What would I have done? And I hope that I wouldn't have been afraid of consequences. I hope I would have done something to help people who are being hunted down. So your actions uh, in support of your faith are more important than the consequences of those actions. Yes. It's very brave. I, I think we all, we all want to live by our faith, I think. So tell me, Susan, what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? I I hope that I remain um, on this journey to nonviolence. I hope that I uh, continue to see the good in other people. I hope that I uh, continue to to, uh, be on the side of the poor. I hope that um, I continue to speak and not be silent in the face of injustice. In your life experience up until now, 
Uh, can you tell us about a eureka moment or an aha moment uh, that changed the way you live? Okay, I can try to do that. You know, I was um, I was at the uh, Methodist Church one night preparing for a little uh, gathering we were having a potluck, and I was talking about nonviolence, and um, so I had this um, sort of piece of paper, and I was writing the attributes of nonviolence on it. And on the opposite, you know, the violent responses to things, the way the culture often teaches us to respond. And I, I realized at that moment that um, all the attributes I had for nonviolence, compassion, love, forgiveness, are the attributes that uh, many of us call God. So that was, that was a, a eureka moment for me. When was that? How long ago? Oh, that was maybe in um, 94. Well, Susan Crane, I appreciate you being on Radio Curious. I think this is uh, our third or fourth visit over the years. And I would like to know if there are um, books or articles that you would recommend to our listeners. Well, I've been uh, very interested in uh, some some articles that I've read about by Judge Weiramantri. He's uh, written about international law, and he's been the judge on the uh, International Court of Justice that made a decision about the illegality of nuclear weapons. And uh, he writes very clearly, and uh, I'm very impressed with his writing. And finally, if um, the results of your uh, actions in the state of Washington in November of 2009 result in you being incarcerated, do you think there would be an opportunity for us to visit by telephone? Oh, I would hope so. From wherever you are? Sure. We hope to hear from you. Thank you. We hope to have you back here in the studios of Radio Curious uh, instead of talking to you by phone if you are incarcerated. Thank you. Thank you, Susan Crane. Susan Crane is a former Peace Corps volunteer and school teacher. She now devotes her life to nonviolent civil disobedience directed at stopping nuclear warfare. She most recently was arrested in November of 2009 for pouring her blood on Trident submarine nuclear missiles in the state of Washington. You may follow further activities of Susan Crane at jonahouse.org. That's J-O-N-A-H-H-O-U-S-E dot O-R-G. The written materials that she recommends are the writings of Judge C.J. Wiramantri. That's W-E-E-R-A-M-A-N-T-R-Y, a member of the International Court of Justice. You may find a link to Judge Wiramantri's writings on the Radio Curious website. All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere, to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. 
Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastad is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.